Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Uh, really excited on this episode to have Joseph Woodbury from Neighbor. Uh, Joseph, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, I keep hearing about Neighbor from everybody out here, and I actually sat in on one of your sessions at the big Silicon Slopes Summit this year. Uh, but for people who don't know what it is, how do you introduce it? Yeah, so Neighbor's a peer-to-peer -peer storage marketplace. So we're taking the $500 billion storage marketplace as a storage market, and we're allowing just individuals to rent out space in their home or their garage or a parking spot if they have it and earn passive income on the side. And, and you know, we've now got active users in every city in all 50 states. That's incredible. Um, how much have you guys raised so far? Uh, just over $65 million. Um, and I know there's some big names in there like Andreessen Horowitz. That's got to be fun. Yeah, uh, it's super fun, and 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 we raised our seed round from from several large Utah investors, a group called Pelion Ventures and and Album Ventures. We really wanted to get Andreessen on board in the A uh, because we're a marketplace, and there just aren't that many marketplaces founded in Utah. And so we said, let's go get the best marketplace investor in the world. And Andreessen's nice; they've got a great great name, obviously. But there was a specific partner at Andreessen, a guy named Jeff Jordan, who we wanted to bring on board. He he built eBay.com back in the day. He was president of PayPal after eBay, eBay bought PayPal. He was CEO of OpenTable, took them public, and then since becoming an investor for Andreessen, he he invested in this little this little uh, hospitality marketplace back in 2011 called Airbnb, and then since has you know, he's on the board of Airbnb and Instacart and Pinterest and OfferUp and kind of all the big marketplaces. So we said, hey, let's just let's go see if we can get him to join our board. It would be great to have that kind of marketplace expertise. And and fortunately, we were lucky enough to have him uh, join us. And I think it was the first time Andreessen's led around in Utah. So that was also fun to give them some Utah uh, exposure. So what kind of benefits have you seen uh, since being able to get him helping out the team? Well, it's just nice. I mean, a lot of investors are investors. Uh, they, could, they come from investment banking or private equity background or something like that. It's nice to have a true operator who's who's been kind of a CEO before and, and run marketplaces and has some industry expertise. And that we'll talk and he'll say, hey, back in the day when we were at this stage in Airbnb, here's the most successful feature they built and here's how it worked out and here's how they thought about it. That kind of, that kind of insider knowledge is, is invaluable. Um, he, he, he has, you know, I'd say he's a fairly, fairly, um, you know, he's, Jeff's a super laid back guy and, and, and always kind of gives pretty, pretty heavy deference to let us ru run the business. And we're always asking him, we're like, Hey Jeff, more wisdom, please. Like we need you to, we need more nuggets. It's a, it's a genius concept, you know. So I'm south of Park City here in Heber, and uh, you guys need some more inventory out here because we were we were going to get storage, and then I was talking to Scott. I was like, no, let's look on Neighbor first, and uh, you got to get we got to get some more users out here so I can put more of my junk in other people's garages. Yeah, one one of the things that's like very different about our marketplace than most other marketplaces out there is. You know, when you go to Airbnb and you book an Airbnb uh, for a weekend, that Airbnb is still available on the platform. Anyone else can book it like the next day, right? 
And same with Uber. Like if someone gives you a 10 minute car ride, Uber can have someone lined up to, 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 for them to give a 10 minute car ride after that. But our supply, when you think about it, um, once it's booked, we take it off the website uh, because it's, it's potentially booked indefinitely. We have users that started with us back in 2017 that are still renting with us today. And, and you look at some of the, the big storage companies, they'll have people stay for 10 years. And so, you know, a lot of marketplaces, you can kind of go on their website and you can say, okay, how much supply do they have in this area? And you can get a pretty good sense for that. Neighbor, it's actually the, the complete opposite because oftentimes you go to a city, you'll see a lack of supply. That just means there's a ton of demand and all the supply is booked. It's all, it's all taken. Well, hopefully my, my neighbors in Hebrew are listening to this and I'll find a place for my snowmobiles and dirt bikes. I, I think that's a, um, a great area. I think that's an area where you'll probably get booked within, within a week or so of putting your space up on the platform. When you think about the challenges of a really fast-growing tech company these days, how do you frame your job as the CEO? Um, you know, there's been a lot written on this. Uh, I, th I think, you know, um, ultimately your, your job is to hire the right people, don't run out of money, and, and play a role in, in, in fostering a great culture. Um, and not necessarily in that order. Uh, the, the one everyone likes to talk about is don't run out of money. Like more than anything, your job as a CEO is to make sure you're managing the finances correctly and that you don't, you know, businesses only die because they run out of money and you need to, to be responsible for making sure you manage that cash efficiently, appropriately, raise additional funds when necessary. Um, second, like, I think the perfect scenario is a, a CEO hires people that are much better than they are. And then those people go hire people that are much better than they are. And those people go hire people that are much better than they are. And it kind of flows down through the org. And you have people, you know, you, the quality just keeps improving. That's, I, I tell our VPs that that's my biggest litmus test for a successful VP is someone who, attracts people that are better than they are um, and, and just world-class. And then finally, that culture, you know, just uh, culture does not, uh, the, the saying is culture eats strategy for breakfast. I don't know that I fully buy that. Culture doesn't create product market fit. Um, if, if you don't have product market fit, you're not going to be successful even if you have the world's best culture. And if you do have product market fit, oftentimes you'll be successful in spite of a bad culture. But for those companies that do have product market fit, culture makes all the competitive difference, right? It's once you've established you have product market fit, the companies that grow the fastest and win the strongest are the ones that have great culture. Do you guys, are you guys sharing how many users you have now? We don't disclose user numbers, but we have, you know, like I mentioned at, at the start, we have people actively using the platform in basically almost every single city in every state in the country. So all 50 states and almost every city in all 50 states, which makes us the largest storage company geographically in the world. Um, and there's some pretty big storage companies. You look at public storage at the 
$60 billion publicly traded company. They have facilities in 39 states at this point. Uh, we've actually got extra space storage in our backyard. A lot of people, my favorite question to ask people is, is especially here in Utah, where you and I are located, is, you know, what's the largest company in the state of Utah? And usually the answer is some sort of, some version of Qualtrics or Intermountain Healthcare. Um, uh, but it's actually not, it's not a tech company. The largest company in the state of Utah is, is Extra Space Storage. It's a publicly traded storage company based out of Cottonwood Heights. Uh, $25, 30000000000 billion company um, uh, that, that only has 3% market share, right? So it's just a, it's just a huge industry. Um, so, yeah. You know, you, you've talked about a number of different things that I'd really like to dive deeper in. Um, sure. One of the things that's fun on the show is that I get to talk to all these different founders across different industries and a uh, lot in tech, but uh, I'm interested in how you define true product market fit because it's something that gets talked a lot about uh, but yeah. people can have uh, people can have very different definitions i wonder what yours is had someone say to me once that true product market fit is when andreessen horowitz invests in your company uh which, which i don't think is true but i thought it was funny um because because i remember when andreessen horowitz invested in our company i do not think we had product market fit at that point um probably the best definition i've heard is when you fill a pull versus a push um, because that's that's the thing that you just can't fake uh, you, you can you can grow you can raise money you can hire you can do all of these things but what you cannot fake is pull so one one of the biggest moments of like uh, kind of aha moments of, of product market fit for me was after we raised the a round up until that point, we had followed kind of an Uber-style launch strategy or Uber-Lyft kind of local market launch strategy where we started in Utah. We built that out for about a year and a half, really really got to the point where we felt like users were loving it in Utah. Then we expanded it outside. We launched LA. It was our first market outside of Utah. And we actually had a GM in the market and a market launcher. And we did things very kind of boots on the ground. And that worked quite well for us. We got as many users in the first seven weeks in, in LA as we'd got, gotten in the first year and a half in Utah. It was like, okay, we can, we can drop this in. We can accelerate this. That's great. We did that in a few other markets uh, successfully. We raised the A round. And I still didn't feel like we had product market fit. It, it was several months after we raised the A round. One of the things we reported to the board on was not just growth in our target markets where we'd launched, where we had a market launcher and a GM and we were actually spending marketing dollars. We also reported on revenue from what we called non-target markets. And we just assumed it would be kind of next to nothing because we were spending no marketing dollars there. There was no reason for any of, anyone to use us or even know about us in those markets. But there reached this point um, you know, six, six-ish months after the A round where we kept looking at that data, we kept showing it to the board and they kept saying, why are your non-target markets growing so fast? Like, what is this? Why, why? You know, some of these, some of these non-target markets are growing as fast as your target market where you're spending the marketing dollars and have people. And, you know, what is this? And 
and people were signing up organically, right? People, hosts were onboarding on the platform, listing their space because our website is, is available and open. And renters were coming along and renting those spaces all without us doing a thing. And, you know, the board really encouraged us to consider a more national approach at that point because there was this strong pull. It was like people were like, I'm going to use this product in my city, whether you like it or not. Uh, and that to me is, is a pull. I, I just had a, the, the interview I did earlier today was Bob Mesta. He's um, centered under Edward Deming, you know, founder of the Toyota production system originally. And uh, some other great leaders like Clayton Christensen at Harvard and stuff, and uh, kind of a pioneer of the jobs to be done theory with Clayton Christensen. And he talked about this idea of like how our supply, our supply is not the point. Like, do they have a, do they have a significant need that we are filling? Like, do they have a struggle in life? And ours is the answer to that hole, which sounds so simplistic and obvious, and yet. So often, I feel like as founders, we're constantly talking about what we do and what our product is and what our benefits are instead of like really what's going on in their life, even though we pay lip service to it. When you really like think about the percentage of a conversation I have with my friends that are CEOs, the overwhelming majority is about their offering, not, not their potential client struggle, right? Yeah. And so to your point, when, when people unasked are finding you, signing up, onboarding, doing all these things, I, I would agree with you. Like, that's a great signal for product market fit. C completely. And, and you know, I think you have to be especially careful of what you talked about in a marketplace because, um, you know, it's one thing if you're running an e-com company and you have a product that you're selling and you need to ask the question, you know, does this product satisfy some need that, you know, d does this this water bottle I've created satisfy some need for a unique water bottle that people are going to need. Um, it's another thing entirely in a marketplace where you have to ask yourself two questions because uh, a marketplace ultimately doesn't provide anything. Uh, you know, like we don't sell storage. We are not a storage company. Our hosts sell storage. And so you first need to ask yourself the question, do renters have need for our hosts? And, and do they need and, and have a hole in their life for our hosts? And then second, do our renters and our hosts have need for a platform? Uh, do they even need us? Because ultimately what we sell is trust and payments and ser customer service and dispute resolution kind of all of those things. That is what we sell. That is our product. Um, our hosts sell storage and we, we need to hope that our renters need both our hosts and us. When, when people are trying to, when it comes to product market fit, where do you think founders lie to themselves? Where do you think um, the holes are? Why do you think some of us stop too early and we don't, we don't do enough on the continuous improvement of it? That I do not have the, the the answer for that because I'll I'll actually say like some of those lies are necessary right like part of part of disrupting anything or part of the whole concept and thesis of, of venture capital is that is that you're going to operate a business at a loss to achieve a certain scale 
where it's all going to make sense. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not, but either way you have to believe it. And so I can't be, I can't be overly critical of, of any, you know, anyone kind of lying to themselves because sometimes you just don't figure it out until a few rounds into it. And you kind of have to give it a good shot. You have to give it a good try to really know. Um, and and so to, to answer your question, lies people tell themselves is, is, you know, if we just get bigger, it will solve all of our problems, right? If we, if we can just get more customers on this, then it will start to, to move. And, and that's both a lie and a truth because that's, for a marketplace, that's true. The more, the more customers you get, uh, the, the more it will accelerate. That's the whole point of the network effects. But at the same time, it has to work early or, or growing will just compound your problems. So you have to balance the, the two mentalities on that. Yes, growth will change things. And also it needs to work before you grow. And solving that, that cold start problem can be quite difficult. Andrew Chen wrote a whole book on it called The Cold Start Problem where he talks about different strategies. I think another lie uh, that that people tell themselves is that, you know, if I just if I just bring in this person that knows or that, that has experience at this company, they will have this answer. And that's oftentimes not the case, right? Uh, we, we've made this mistake several times, not, not necessarily in, in hiring, although I'm sure we've made that mistake as well, but just in believing that we can rely on other companies. But at the end of the day, if you're truly building something disrupt, disruptive, you have to figure it out yourself from first principles. I remember we built a feature on our platform. Um, we had heard that the single most successful feature that Airbnb ever built on their platform was Instant Book. Nothing accelerated Airbnb's growth more than this feature they built called Instant Book, which allowed a renter to get approved without having to wait for a host approval. Uh, host would give Airbnb permission to just instantly approve all their reservations. And it was a feature that Brian Chesky had kind of drug his feet about. He wasn't, he was kind of hesitant to, to implement it. But once they did, they took off like a rocket ship and they couldn't sign up hosts fast enough. And now today you see most, most um, uh, uh, people on Airbnb's platform, they're all instant bookable. And it took Airbnb's approval rate from like, 30 or 40% up to like 70 or 80%. It was a huge change for their business. So we thought if it worked for Airbnb and we're a very similar business to Airbnb, it'll work great for us. So we built a very similar feature and we deployed it and we said, you know, this is going to approve our, this, this will improve our approval rates. It'll improve our, our, our GMV, our revenue. Everything's going to go up. And it did. We rolled the feature out and it was a massive success. Uh, our approval rate went up, GMV went up, revenue went up, nothing but celebrating, did everything we expected it to. A couple months into the into the rollout, we'd gotten a ton of hosts to sign up and we started to have some problems. And these problems, uh, we didn't realize them for a couple months in because they had a lag effect to them. Uh, and it was that, sure, these renters were getting instantly approved. We were booking the revenue. Uh, it was looking like everything was working, 
But then the renter would show up to the space and the host wasn't there because the host hadn't manually approved it and, or, or the host was unaware of the approval or, 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 or the host was unresponsive. Um, and that, that caused some issues where renters a month later when they got charged again for the next month, they were reaching out to us for refunds and saying, I never moved into this space. And it ended up being a complete disaster. We had to shut it all down. And that taught us a really important lesson of don't just rely on what other people have done. Think about your customers and your business from first principles and make decisions that benefit your customers. Because our customers, unlike Airbnb, where customers book way out in advance and they, they plan their trips way out in advance, Storage users, they wake up one day and they think, shoot, I need storage. And they book a unit and they want to move in like a day or two after they book the unit. And so there's not a lot of time and they need answers fast from that host. And so that approval process is actually quite important where the host has 24 hours to approve the renter. It, it causes communication to take place. And the host will often ask questions about what the renter's storing and they, they come to a mutual agreement. and and the renter knows before they show up that their items are going to fit in the space and all of the stuff. It works very smoothly when there's an approval, that 24-hour approval in place. And pulling that approval out, like Airbnb had done, was actually not the right thing for our business. You know, I'd be interested in another one. The, the idea of first principles. People define it differently. How do you define it? Hey, I mean... You can complicate it, but first principles at, at its core is just, just just to think on a premise basis, premise, 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 conclusion, right? Uh, to, to really define why you think something is going to work and to, to operate in a way where you go back to the root causes, the root problems. You don't jump to solutions. You start from a problem framework and, and use the, the most distilled principles to answer that because then you can argue with those principles if you distill things down to principles then people can agree or disagree on a common basis off of that principle off of those principles uh so my follow-up to that is for people listening today who want to get better at thinking that way what kind of advice do you have you know i i'm somewhat biased in this direction i come from a management consulting background i i spent some time at bain and company um before neighbor and Probably the most valuable thing I took out of that experience was this framework ability. You learn very quickly to break things down into their component parts and to say, to, to, to ask the question, okay, what is this comprised of? And what is that comprised of? And to just break things down in a very kind of tree, tree-like fashion. Uh, the, the term is used uh, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive, where each bucket is different is is exclusive from all other buckets and together your buckets are collectively exhausted and in other words they represent all the possibilities the classic um uh, example of this is just you know what drives revenue you can ask the question okay what is what is revenue comprised of and you know it's it's a it's price times a unit you know and and uh, times the number of units and then you can break down your units and their component parts and you can break down your price into its component parts and really drill down until you know all the things that generate up to 
to your revenue. You can go even further than that. What's profit? And then you bring expenses into that. What are expenses made up? They're made up of marketing expenses and 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 sal you know employee expenses and and kind of other fixed costs to the business. What are those made up? And you just keep breaking it down into its component parts. I think that structure is quite a thinking at least. Maybe not having to do it so academically, but at least thinking in that manner helps you boil down and distill those principles. As you describe it that way, visually in my head, I'm thinking about buckets full of Lego. So you can put the Lego back together in the most optimal way once you've got it's, it broken into the individual pieces. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's very much like Legos. It's it's what are the component pieces that, that that drive this. And and then you really get a sense for what are your levers, what are your drivers, what what can we influence and how will that boil up and who owns that yeah. lever. So I want to bring up another thing you talked about, um, staffing and recruiting and yeah. culture feel pretty related to me. Let's start with um, when it comes to identifying who who you want, you know, I think it was one of your other interviews, you talked about uh, going through like trying to get someone who's great at digital marketing, and you went through 65 different candidates before you found who you're looking for. Can you talk to me more about the, the model that you use when you're deciding who you think is right for the business? Kind of two directions I'll take first on a general principle. You'll hear this all the time for all sorts of companies, but you know, uh, the the phrase here is A players hire A players, uh, B players hire C players, and C players sink the ship. Um, so, so that's nice to say, uh, and it's kind of nice to repeat that that mantra. And I think all of us want to go hire A players. So why don't we all go hire A players? I think there's two reasons. Like one you know, just speed and convenience. And the second is, is we don't know how to define an A player. Uh, on the first one, I think many companies, you, you're trying to grow fast, you need a position filled, and there's actually a business trade-off. You, you need to recognize that there are trade-offs to hiring A players. It is slower to hire A players. It is more work to hire A players. And every day that you don't hire that A player, you're losing revenue. And are you willing to make that trade-off? And some companies are and some companies aren't. And I don't think there's actually a perfectly right answer there. There are some companies that they hire good enough people. They they hire, of course, they're not going to hire the bad people. But the first person that comes in through their process that is good enough to do the job and fits the requirements, they hire that person. And they're able to get away with with kind of moving faster and hiring, you know, good people, but not great people. And, and because of their speed to hire, they just replace them when they don't work out. There's another approach, which is our approach, which is to hurt the company in the short term, to, to really cause damage to the company in the short term by extending out the process and really searching to find the great person and then really investing in those great people. And that kind of brings to the second point, which is, uh, how do you define those those A players? Like, what is an A player? There's a quote, um, you know, from Steve Jobs where he, he was talking about this, and and uh, he he was trying to define it, and he said most things in life are thirty percent better. You know, the best airline flight is only thirty percent better than the worst airline flight. The best, you know, food. Uh, the best meal is like 30% better than an average meal. 
Um, it's only when you get to people that you really get these big spreads. And he, he used his, I think, co-founder, uh, Steve Wozniak, where he said, you know, Woz was 50x better than the average engineer. And and he, he uh, you know, he could do what 50 engineers could do and he could hold whole you know meetings in his head and and stuff like that so that starts to build it but that's not even specific enough for me i saw another person try to define this and they tried to put numbers to it and they said they said a players i can't remember the percentage do 130 percent of a job right that's how you know an a players they do they don't do their job they do 130 percent or 150 percent or something like that B players do 85 to 90% of a job and C players do, you know, 60 or 70% of a job. And it, that, that B player definition is what I think is super helpful because those are the tempting ones, right? Those are the ones that they don't, it's not, they're not easy to recognize. They don't do half of their job. They're not like super underperforming. They do 90%. And those are the people you really need to be careful about because no one hires C players. Um, B players hire C players. And so you have to avoid, it's easy to avoid hiring the C players. It's hard to avoid hiring the B players. So that's where the frameworks and the extended interview process where you really dive in deep. You don't just hire the first person that comes along, but you run them through technical interviews and experience interviews and fit interviews. Um, that's where that pays off is differentiating between those A and those B players. Um, that's so helpful to hear, by the way. Well, you're, I'm interrupting. What, what were you going to continue there? I was just going to pivot a little bit and say, like, what do we look for at Neighbor? Um, it's position specific. We have very specific things we're looking for for an A player engineer. But there are, there are three things that we think kind of span all positions. Um, and we've defined those as passionate, hardworking, and talented. Um, those are three things that we want in every position. So in order to discern talent, that's where we're going to run technical interviews to like try and try and measure how talented are you at your field or, or job. For an engineer, that can be a, a coding interview or a whiteboard interview um, where, where you're really diving in. Uh, together and and you can see how they operate technically that really starts to measure their talent that's different though than than hard work and passion the reason we talk about these three items is because um uh what we talk about is is we we ask the question what does it look like without each one of those pieces and um so if you take the first two, if if you're someone who is, uh, uh, I'm actually pulling up right now. We have a, a thing I put together on this where I kind of define out um, these different attributes. So, so if you're someone who's talented at what you do, an expert at what you do, and you're also very passionate, but you're not willing to work hard, that then you're dreaming, right? You're just a dreamer. You're talented, you're passionate, but you're not willing to put in the work. If you're talented and you're hardworking, you're willing to put in the work and you're quite talented, but you're not passionate, 
that is drudgery and those people will burn out um, uh, because they don't really love what they're doing. They don't enjoy it. It's, it's just drudgery. And then the final combination would be hard work and passion. And if you're hardworking and you're passionate, but you're not talented, this is the one area where we will occasionally make an exception because it's doable, but it's important to recognize that without talent, you will be slower. Talent equals speed. And so you need to be careful about that trade-off you're making. If you're hiring someone, that's the one area where we will occasionally make a bet on someone. We think they're really hardworking. They're really passionate. They show some clear talent in other areas, but they may not show talent in the specific area. We trust that they'll, they'll, they'll learn up on that talent quickly. Um, so, so that, that hard work plus passion, but not talent equals slower. Um, now if you have all three, that's the golden combination. You'll be passionate. You'll be hardworking. You'll be talented. That's, that's a true A player. I really like that explanation. I like how you've broken it down so much. It's funny because usually when I hear people talk about this, they're like, they're quoting Bill Gates talking about how like his most productive programmers were, they weren't 10 times better. They were a thousand times better as far as the influence they had on Microsoft. You know what I mean? Um, sure. And not coming from a technical background like that, I haven't always related to that as much. But as you were talking today, I thought about it for sales. You know, when we run retail sales teams, like for retail investments, right? I have had a bunch of, you know, co commission only reps, a bunch of like C players that raise like 50 grand a year and then B players that do, you know, a couple hundred thousand or something like this or whatever. And then my A players raising like 4 million a year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like the Delta there from like, you know, C to B is like 50 to a hundred or 15 to a hundred. And then the A is in the millions. You know what I mean? Like, and it's I, just so blatant. But what they're doing with those hours and like putting in the extra hour and the like the wisdom with which they apply their <laughs> apply their efforts. Right. Yeah, that's that's actually what I was, I was kind of jumping in to say is like, I think it's important to recognize that that the, the big delta, that four million to a couple hundred thousand delta isn't just talent. Right. Like it's partly talent that they, they are it's partly because those sales reps are better at closing deals and, and they're more talented but part of it is passion right part of it is they that the reps that close that much they love it and and they they get not just money and commission out of it they get joy out of it they love the chase they love the win and then part of it is just hard work right like this this is the big thing that Elon Musk focuses on all the time is this hard work piece. He always says, you know, if you work 40 hours a week uh, uh, and I work 100 hours a week, then I'm going to get done in four months, but it'll take you a year to get done, right? Uh, and, and there's something to be said for like hard work. Um, that extra mile that you talked about, that extra hour pays off as well. So it, it's all three. And, and anyone who says it's it's just one of those pieces, I think is wrong, right? You need to be, a better salesperson, you also need to be, you also need to love it more and you also need to put in the extra hours and that's how you, you, you kind of achieve the trifecta. I'm interested, you look at this kind of outside success that you're having and there's so many other tech founders that would like this. What do you think you've done differently? What's different about you that you've achieved what you've achieved so far? 
Well, first important to say, you know, like any, any, any appearance of success in any company is usually a facade. Uh, and, and we have our fair share of, uh, uh, things that problems we have to solve. And that's, it wouldn't be fun if it didn't, right? Like that is why you join a startup, join a startup. If you want easy, you join a startup because you really like these big, hairy problems coming at you every single day. And that's what brings you satisfaction. Like for me, I, I could care less, you know, what we exit this company at. Uh, uh, some founders, I think, care about that more than others. Like if neighbor were gone tomorrow, I'd want to go, go, you know, work for someone else working on an interesting problem because I just like solving. I like every day a new problem coming down the pipeline that doesn't have a clean answer. That's why people join startups, I think, for the most part, uh, or at least the good people. Um, so important to, to recognize that. I think whatever success we have had um, has, has I, I had someone approach me the other day. It's always hard to know what your own successes are. Like, I feel like all we do at Neighbor all day long is talk about like the things we're doing wrong. Um, and we're not great at celebrating our wins, but oftentimes people with an outside perspective can help you see those things. I had someone I was talking to the other day. It was another, another founder. And this was, this was super nice and, and generous of him, but it resonated with me. And he said, there's two things I see when I see neighbor. And like, when I hear about neighbor, when people tell me about neighbor, here's the two things that, that stand out to me. He said, the first is when I hear about neighbor, I hear that you guys are super principled. Uh, and, and that's, not just the leadership, it's all the employees. He's like, neighbor makes the hard calls and the hard decisions. They don't follow the trends of whatever the latest, like, you know, company trend is. And he referred to a few things. He's like, you guys are in the office and when everyone's remote. You know, he's like, neighbor is always kind of willing to make the, the hard but right call. Uh, and, and I think that's paid huge dividends for us over time. It's not always easy in the moment because everyone thinks you're an idiot in the moment, right? Uh, but, but over time those add up. And the second thing he said that I also thought was just so nice. Um, and, and, uh, you know, only true to a certain extent, but I think there's some truth to this. He said like neighbor truly believes what they do. He said, uh, everyone kind of knows when they talk to a neighbor employee that like that employee truly believes this is going to be a $50 billion outcome. Uh, it's truly going to be kind of this massive thing. And you get this genuine belief. And a lot of people know that, like, if you take the time to sit down with a neighbor employee, you'll often end that that time, you know, five or 10 minutes later, you'll walk away kind of believing it yourself as well. And so I think that's also an important part of our our culture here at Neighbor is like, we truly believe we're building something different. and and uh we're mission driven uh which is kind of a a uh a phrase that means nothing because it gets tossed around so much but like it's fun to work alongside people that that kind of share that common goal and truly believe it because a lot of companies where they talk about that but you don't truly believe it you're just like yeah that could happen but is it going to happen i don't know um so so having that that you know, just being surrounded with that ambiance. Um, I, I, I feed off of it. I, 
I, I gain something on a day-to-day basis by working with employees that truly believe that's the opportunity and the outcome. Uh, again, I like the answer. Um, maybe my next question then is, when you think about how often uh, CEOs are replaced, you know, because the company grows to a certain level and the venture capitalists are like, oh, we need, now we need, prof- now we need adult supervision or now we need professional management or something like this. And then some CEOs like a Brian Chesky are there all the way up, right? Um, for yourself, as you think about scaling yourself as a CEO and, and whether it's skill stacking, whether it's mastery of certain things, what, what does that look like in your mind? Well, I think it's, this is probably the most important discussion you can have as like seed stage founders. Um, hands down, the biggest thing that kills like seed stage companies is founder conflict, right? Uh, and, and even in the companies that are successful, you know, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it seems, from my perspective, Dude. it seems like 80 or 90% of, of seed stage companies a founder will exit in the first year or two. It's it's just going to happen. You don't necessarily need to feel bad if it does happen because it's going to happen. I've asked myself this question before, like why do we five years in still have all three founders? Um, and and we've like never had any meaningfully con- any any meaningful conflict between. I count it like my greatest blessing uh, from a work perspective. I, I'd say my greatest blessings in life are mostly family oriented, but but from a work perspective, my greatest blessing is like between me and my two co-founders, we've never had any meaningful founder conflict. Like, why is that? And I trace it all the way back to this conversation we had a few months after we started Neighbor. We sat down and we, we looked at each other and we said, all right, founder means nothing. It, it means two things, really. It means we start out with an outsized share of the equity. And it means we started this company. And that's it. it. That's it. It doesn't entitle us to anything beyond that. It doesn't entitle us to be in certain meetings. It doesn't entitle us to certain leadership positions. It doesn't entitle us to anything. It just means we start out with a, uh, uh, by divvying up the equity amongst ourselves. So we get a lot of equity. And it means we started the company. That's it. And the direct follow-on in that conversation was each of us kind of committed to each other. If I'm ever not the right CEO or my co-founders, their positions as well, if I'm ever not the right VP, I will step down. I will take another position. Uh, I've always said, if I'm ever not the right CEO to scale the business, I would love to work for neighbor in another capacity. Like put me in an IC role. I would love to go crush it. Put me in a, uh, director role. I'd love to go run a team. And having that mentality from the very beginning caused us all to know, like, if we're going to keep our positions, there's nothing that's going to give those positions to us. Founders not going to keep us in those positions. So we have to go scale ourselves. And when you think about scaling yourself, it starts to become pretty clear what you have to do. You have to be better than anyone you could hire from an outside perspective. If you truly believe, I'm not sure most founders truly believe that founder entitles them to nothing. Because if founder truly entitles you to nothing, then if there is ever an opportunity to hire someone who is better than you at that role, you need to do it. And so that's the standard. It sets the standard where you have to be the best person 
in this role that you possibly could be. So one thing I've tried to do as CEO is, is to be an effective CEO. I need to not just hire great people, but I need to be able to speak intelligently about the things that they do uh, so that I can provide appropriate feedback so that I can kind of banter back and forth with them about the right decision. And ultimately, I'm going to let them make the decision, but I'm not useful to them unless I can be like, hey, what about this? What about this? Uh, I have a question about this. I have a question about this. I don't know what to ask questions about. So I go read engineering blogs about architecture so that I can speak intelligently to our VP of engineering about architecture. I, when I started this company, I knew nothing about, you know, I, we started this out of school. I didn't know anything about software engineering. I go read SEO blogs so that I can say, hey, well, have you considered that Google cares about this when, you know, approaching SEO? And what if we pursue a content versus a programmatic strategy? And, and, and then they usually have better answers than I could ever have to those questions, but I can ask the questions. And that's one thing I've done to try and scale is I'm just trying to consume as much information as possible in the respective domains of my direct reports so that I can continue to, to intelligently manage them and know who to hire in those positions and, and where to look. If people, uh, if people want to join neighbor, where's the best places? What are they, are they searching neighbor.com on the app store? Or is it just neighbor? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're neighbor. So if you need storage, we're the number one ranked mobile app on the app store for storage. You could just start search self storage will be the number one result. Or you can search neighbor will be the number one result. You search RV storage will be the number one result. Um, or the website, we made it super easy. We're just neighbor.com. Um, so, yeah, and we can, oftentimes, we'll get users to sign up and they'll, they'll, they'll say, the, the name caused me to think you were just in my neighborhood. I'm, I'm in Florida. And I looked and I was a little unsure if I wanted to use this website because I was like, yeah, this company only has users in Florida. They're just a neighborhood Florida website. And and we'll be like, no, we, we're in your neighborhood and we're in all the neighborhoods in Missouri, too, and in all the neighborhoods in Utah. So, like, join us. We, we, need, to, we need to grow. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate, appreciate your time as well. Bye, everyone.